Father, thank you for our time in the word, a time to, <coughs> preceded by a great time of worship. Reminded by great truths put to song. What a precious thing the saints get to sing, Lord. Now as Fanny Crosby just reminded us, someday we'll sing with the millions untold. Oh, Lord, you have been so gracious to mankind. You've saved so many. Lord, we thank you for that. Now as we study, may we know you more. We, particularly in this passage, may we see how you react to sin. How costly and dangerous it is for your people to mess with it. Cause us to be lovers of you more, lovers of your word, as we study this. In Jesus' name, amen. Started this, this passage a couple weeks ago. Um, I entitled it, There's No Life Without the Mediator. <laughs> uh, man needs a mediator. And so we find this type, this Moses, who's a type of Christ. He's mediating for this very stiff-necked nation. And we dove into this passage in Exodus 32 uh, two weeks ago, and we saw that a failing to trust in God's timing will expose idols in your heart. And we looked at that, um, and we spent quite a bit of time on that, because it's such, it was true back then, and it's true today, that you'll remember they, they got frustrated, because Moses didn't come off the mountain at their timing, they thought he was dead, they didn't. Just things were not going the way they thought it should go, and so they fell into sin. And when you fail to trust God in His timing, you know this, brothers and sisters, when you get upset, when things don't go the way you want, it'll expose idols of your heart. And here it exposed a big golden idol of their heart. And you see that in verses 1 through 6. All they had to do was look up. He was right there with them. But they ended up taking all the gold and silver and stuff off their ears and God just lays out perfectly what's happening down the mountain. He's omniscient. He sees all things. And they end up throwing themselves before a golden bull calf and break the two first first commands before Moses can get off the mountain with them. Then in 6 through 10, you see this omniscient God defining their sin. He talked about the golden bull calf and all that. But then he begins to talk about the corruption of their hearts. Because he's omniscient. He can see into the heart of man. He can see in the heart of people. In in verse 7 he says they've corrupted themselves. Sin will corrupt you. And he tells Moses they've fallen into corruption. There's verses throughout the New Testament that teach us that That God's salvation saves us from the corruption of the world. And so we should not fall back into corruption. In verse 8 he said, look how quickly they turn aside. Short-lived faith. Didn't get what I wanted from God and so I looked for another. Very short-lived. Of course it was a false faith in many cases. And then they begin to say, this is your God, this is, this is God telling Moses exactly what they're saying. It shows he knows all things, sees all things, right? And then he tells them this is an obstinate people, stiff-necked. They're hard to manage. And then he says, in 10, my anger's going to go loose here. 
And this could be the end of them, and I'll start a nation with you. And he begins to test Moses. What's the mediator going to do now? Is the mediator going to trust in God? Is the mediator going to handle the principles of God right? And this is a test for Moses. This isn't a challenge whether God changes his mind all the time. This is a test for Moses. So let's look at a couple of thoughts with the rest of these verses start in verse 11. First, a passionate plea of the mediator. A passionate plea of the mediator. Remember, Moses is a type. He, he, is a, uh, he, he resembles Christ. He's not Christ. He was a sinner. Christ had to die for him. But there's types within the Bible and he's there. And, and you'll see in this as we go along, and I want you to think about Christ. Remember, he prays for Peter that, that Satan wouldn't sift him. Um, he, he, he's on the cross, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. I mean, you can see what Moses is doing. These are undeserving people, but there's a mediator pleading for their forgiveness. Look at verse 11 with me. Then Moses entreated the, the Lord as God and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Well, Moses makes no mention of the possibility that, that the role that, that God drew out. I mean, he, he's, not, he's not saying that anything about himself. He's saying, God, you have done this. Notice he gathers his thoughts after hearing this sad news. And, and, and now he seeks to win the Lord over towards his people once more. He's, he knows that God is righteous in his anger and he's there to mediate a very righteous God, a very holy God before sinful people. And clearly Moses knows there's nothing good in himself or the people and yet he, he approaches, and I love this about this and it reminds me of our Savior, he approaches a very difficult situation with a divine perspective. Notice he does two things. At the end of verse 11, Moses reminds God of this worshipful statement of him. You're great and you're powerful and you're mighty. And look what you've done, God. This is what <coughs> the mediator does. He says, God, you've done all these great things. He reminds him of these things. And then second, notice in verse 12. And he says, why should the Egyptians speak, saying, with evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to the people. And so second, Moses in verse 12 begins to argue that destroying these people will be misinterpreted by the nations. God, I don't want you to be known this way, God. You can see this great mediator work on behalf of the nation here. And, he, and he's referring particularly to the Egyptians I don't want them to reject the truth of what they saw, that you with great power, you turned water into blood and frogs and flies and hail, and, and then you took out the firstborn. Who could do that? I don't want them to forget the truth of what you have done. See, I, I think what God's doing, he's just entreating this out of Moses. He's just starting with these people. <laughs> I mean, think about it. He's got another 40 years walking around the wilderness with these, these guys let alone all the difficulties are going to come. He's testing him. Do you believe me? He's entreating this out of him. Third, notice at the end of verse 12, he says, turn, this is Moses speaking to God, turn from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to these people. 
See, Moses is pleading for the Lord to show mercy on his own people. Father, forgive these guys. They don't know what they're doing. I mean, doesn't that sound just like Christ? What would you do if you were the father and they nailed your innocent son to a cross? Take out the guys who did it. And here is Moses acting in this type, pleading for the mercy of undeserving people. Well, Moses, notice he, he never suggests that God's anger is wrong. Notice that in the text. It's always his anger is righteous. He's not saying it isn't. He, he sees as legitimate. He sees as, as warranted. But Moses has seen firsthand the mercy of God. He's seen how God was so merciful. So he's leaning on the mercy and grace of God. I think this is the difference that pulls people out of legalism. Because there's a part of us that feels like we should get something deserved us. And, and then we try to write it by our own efforts. We try to do this or do more of that or something like that. And we never fail to lean on the mercy and grace of God. That means you have to humble yourself before this mighty God. And until you do that, you'll struggle and struggle and struggle. And Moses is saying, God, you are merciful. You are gracious. I have watched you act on behalf of your people. Isn't it? As I dwelt on this this week, I thought, Lord, that's exactly what you want out of us. And you'll test us even to the point of, of situations where people around us will fall apart. They'll do awful things. And he wants to see if grace and mercy is going to be our plea. Or are we going to turn with a hammer? Moses, um, I think what Moses is saying here is that he's not altering God's purpose in any way. And if there was some plan of the Lord as if it was wrong of something, right? What the Lord has said concerning his wrath truly represents a righteous attitude with respect to such a sinful situation, a godless pagan worship of a false god. But the Lord's teaching Moses and his people that rebellion is no light sin either. And so you see this strong reaction by God and and everybody goes, oh, wait, God, you can pray and you can change God's mind and all of that. Whoa, wait a minute. Maybe God's not you're not changing God's mind, he's changing yours. And so this text has been misrepresented so often. And I think when we look at this, we begin to realize the gravity of sin. This is rebellion. This is not some lightweight sin. Sin is sin, of course, but this is a rebellious sin. And it's hurtful to God. And it causes him great pain, and it deserves death. But notice in this verse, it also teaches us that forgiveness is not something easily attained. It's costly. And I want you to think about the cross when we get to stuff like this. Our forgiveness was not easily attained. It was very expensive. It cost the life of our Savior. And I think that's what's coming out of this text. Someone must mediate the terms of forgiveness. That's our Lord. And this is our Lord before the fathers forgive Scott. Forgive him of all his past, present, and future sins. 
He's pleading for us. Notice in verse 13, Moses turns to God's covenant. He says, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and all the land which I have spoken, I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. I think this is the greatest element of Moses' plea before the Lord. He, he brings the priority of God's own covenant to him. You made a covenant. And what's in that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, or Israel? What's sitting down the hill? Judah. Whose seed is in the line of Judah? Christ. God knows he's not going to wipe these people out. He's testing Moses to see, if, do you believe in my covenant? Do you believe that I have given you a great promise? And of course, this comes out of Moses as the great mediator. It comes out of him. He's reminding God of these promises. And it, this isn't arrogant. This is humble submission. Humble submission to the plan of God. God, you set this plan up. You started this whole thing with Abraham. You told him in chapter 12 of uh, verse 3 of Genesis uh, of course, he wouldn't have had those verses we do. But he said, you said there would be one who would come from his seed that would be a blessing to all nations. So that's what's coming out of verse 13. Notice that Moses caps this reminder off in verse 13 by highlighting the power and authority of God's own sworn oath. He says, you swore by yourself. You know what he's talking about? The eternal plan of God. He said, this is your eternal plan, Father. This is your eternal plan, God. This is what you've done. I've bought into it. I believe you. <laughs> and God was entreating this out of Moses. Well, this inspired text teaches us that God is leading Moses to understand this. He, he would never undermine the consistency of his own nature, right? God is not saying, well, okay, uncle, you changed my mind. This is a great lesson for Moses himself. More than even the people. The people are going to, oh, we're going to be sorry. And some of them are going to die. We're going to see this in a minute here. But it's Moses who learns the greatest lessons. And this is for all to know that Moses was a mediator. And it proves his character and his belief in the word of God. Look at verse 14 with me. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he had said he would do to his people. It's interesting, nothing further is said by God, and it's, it's clear that Moses had this humble attitude as he came to God, understanding and not in an argument way, but he wins favor with God. Nothing more is said. And I love the human element of this communication with God because it allows, he allows Moses to approach him with truth. Hey, there's some hard things we all go through. And sometimes you get in front of God and you, with a great plea of his truths, beckon him for help. I don't know how many times I've said, God, you said <laughs> you would not leave me. You know, you, you, sometimes you have to speak that out. You, if you speak in truth, in humility, you can come before a God like that. Our God like that. And that's what I think is happening here, showing us that when you come with truth of God's word and you come with humility, you can speak even to him with passion. Oh Lord, where are you? You said you would not leave me. It is not that God is being forced to adopt some new plan here by Moses. 
His flaws, his covenant is flawless, right? It's more the focus on this role of mediator. Can you mediate my people? And again, just remember the, this. None of this. When 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 these false guys came up and you know for a while, not too many years ago, there was there was this huge teaching that God doesn't know the future and He's reacting off of people. It didn't last very long, but it does come up about every half century in church history. It comes up and gets refuted by by people who believe the Bible. But there's no way. That's the characteristic of God. He wouldn't be sovereign. So just some additional information before I end this point here. Um, this, was, this was not good what Aaron did. <laughs> in Deuteronomy chapter 9 is an interesting parallel passage late, written later by Moses before they went into the promised land. And it's a beautiful passage because it, takes, it gives us more information as what is going on. In Deuteronomy chapter 9 verse 20 the Bible says the Lord, Moses says this, the Lord was angry with Aaron to destroy him. Remember, Aaron let this happen on his watch. And Moses says, so I prayed for Aaron at the same time. God was pleased with Aaron, and we'll see that just in a moment here. But there's, there's more that comes along with it. And then you get to Psalms 106, and listen to this. Therefore, he said, verse 23, he said that he would destroy them. This is Looking back at, saw, at the, um, this event in the Exodus. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them? I wonder if that could be said of us. Have you ever stood in the way of God's wrath? Something maybe your children have done or somebody hurt you greatly. And they deserved great punishment and you stood in the gap and begged God to be merciful. God wants us to be that way. You want to overcome sin? Get a, give a, get a biblical view of God and, and what sin looks like and what God looks like and go to him with humility. And you'll grow in your understanding. Two, God's mediator reasserts his leadership and removes the idolatrous practices. So the Lord was pleased with Moses' response. He has interceded with the people. His wrath is turned away from destroying this disobedient people. And now Moses starts to move down the hill to face a very disturbing, um, to say the least, situation in the camp. In these verses, we see Moses acting with great authority. Um, he's got tremendous energy as he comes down to deal with the depths of this sin against a holy God. And some think this passage even is showing Moses as being sinful. Of course, these are liberal theologians. But remember, Moses is a type, and he's pointing forward to a perfect Messiah, an intercessor to come. And, and there's a clear link to Jesus here, and a lot of strong words that are used here for those who reject the Father's plan. When you study Jesus, he calls people snakes, dogs, broods of vipers, who warns you over the coming wrath. Christ speaks very, very bluntly at those who oppose him. And there, there can be no, especially if you look at this passage, such a clear resemblance to Christ cleansing the temple. That was a, a pretty violent response by Christ. Not once, but twice. John chapter 2, and then later, right towards the end of his ministry, the last week of his life, he cleanses it again. 
And so there's some parallels that we'll see as we go down through here. And yes, Moses was a sinner and he'd need the blood of Christ to fall upon him. But we see him use God's word right and react in a righteous way. And of course that points towards Christ. Look at verses 15 and 16. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of testimony in his hands. The tablets which were written on both sides. They were written on one side and on the other. The tablets were God's work and the writing was God's writing engraved on the on the tablets. Um, back in chapter 31, verse 18, it tells us that God wrote on these and gave these to him. And he was supposed to take them down and he was supposed to put them in the Ark of the Covenant. Once he built that, he got instructions for the Ark and then he was supposed to put those in there. But again, this verse reminds us that these tablets are God's word, right? They're valuable. Um, and, and this is what God wants to have. So there's a there's just a statement in here to remind us that this was the handwriting. This is the work of God. Now look at verse 17. Now when, jo- when Joshua heard the sound of the people as they were shouting, he said to Moses, there is a sound of war in the camp. Now presumably Moses picks Joshua up on the way down. We know that Joshua wasn't up with God and speaking with God like Moses was. So he must pick him up on the way down the hill and, and there's a sound of this rebellious festival going on. And Joshua thinks it's even the prep, it's something like maybe the preparations of the war or it's a victory after war. He hears this and, he, and of course he is not privy to the information that Moses has. And he probably thinks the Amalekites are attacking again and they're getting ready to fight. Because that already happened once. But notice in verse 18 Moses says, It is not the sound of the cry of trumpet, trumpets, uh, triumphant. Nor is it the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. Moses just had more information, right? He goes, this isn't war. This is rejoicing in sin. He knew exactly what was going on because God told him. Look at verse 19. And it came about as soon as Moses came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing. And Moses' anger burned. And he threw the tablets from his hand and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. Now notice how the narrative returns back to Moses. It focuses back on Moses now. And these two men are coming down. And God already told Moses what was going on. It was one thing to hear it, but it was a whole other thing to see it. I don't know if you've ever heard about sin and then you see it. I remember the first time I was in, in India. Um, I was just telling some people we were at a missions meeting this week. I was overwhelmed when I first got into the depths of India and saw the sin that was going on. I'd never seen anything like that. I'd heard about it. I'd read about it, but I'd never seen it. And I think that's what happens to Moses. He sees what God had said. And think about it. He spent 40 days and 40 nights in this great retreat with God. Such holiness, such beauty in the presence of God. And then you come in such a contrast with such an offensive sin that breaks the first two commandments and it's overwhelming to Moses. It's a calf. And it's not just a calf, it's a replacement of God. They've replaced God. I don't know how many times I've asked that to people in counseling. Is this what you replace God with? You're defending it like you would defend God. You're mad. You get angry when we push a little bit in this area. See, this is offensive, and Moses knows it. He's just been with the Almighty, and then he steps into the presence of this. Disaster, sinful disaster. 
It's interesting the word dancing is highlighted in there. It's actually in a plural form in the Hebrew. And, you know, there's been people have used this verse to teach that you can't dance. Um, I think that's a decision on your own you need to make. That's not what this is about. In fact, the term is used of circling something and dancing around something. And so when you begin to understand this, they encircled this golden bull calf and they they had a festival around him. Everything was worshipped around this bull calf. And it's highlighted how they're worshipping. In fact, it's showing that they had great joy and pleasure as they circled themselves around such a sinful thing. Just all a response of their heart, wasn't it? See, was this, was this a fitting rage of Moses? Was he right? Well, I think there's two areas that shows that his anger was righteous. Number one, notice in, in verse, back in verse 10, it says the God's anger burned. And then in this verse, in verse 19, it says the same thing about Moses. So there seems to be a God-like response. And people love to talk about like a righteous anger. And most of the time, our anger is not righteous, is it? But there are times our anger will line up with what God is angry with. Can you be angry and sin not? See, God does it. And I think Moses did it here because he seems to line up. And I think as a mediator, he's displaying how God would respond to the situation. God hates sin. And I think as a mediator, he's saying, look, this is, this is going to bring the judicial wrath of God upon you. This is a rejection of who he is. And so this mediator, the only one who can bring these people to the Father, is upset. Second, I, you see that Moses smashes the tablets here, right? And, and it doesn't seem that he makes it into the camp. He seems to be on the edge. And I, I think one of the reasons why is because he comes. He's got the word of God here. You know, not, don't have any graven inches. Don't bow down to idols. First two of them. And he has these tablets in his arms and he looks up and sees the defilement of the first two passages from God's word to his people. And he doesn't want that God's word defiled in the camp. And so I've read quite a bit on this and I read some pretty good commentators that said he broke those. He wasn't taking God's word into that camp. It was undeserving of his word. And I don't know really what the truth is. The narrative doesn't tell, tell us, but it, it does strike you that he breaks those things. And you go, well, was he overly angry? He goes, well, no. Because we know when he is angry, he gets in trouble. Because later in Numbers, he's mad, strikes a rock. And God does punish him for that. So this is, seems to be a different anger. It's lining up with the things of God. And, and brothers and sisters, it's anger against sin. It's anger against a defilement against God. And it's a public testimony of what God thinks. That's why preachers have to preach against sin still. And, and we don't have to be angry and scream and throw ourselves all over the place, but we better get excited at what sin is against the holy God. If you can't see that, this is, that sin just is an offense against God, you have a wrong view of sin and you probably have a wrong view of God. But yet we have to contain it in a way that we're not legalistic, that we're broken over sin, that we realize that sin damages everything, the view of God, the relationships, all those things. And from that comes a righteous anger. 
Again, I think you see the parallels between Christ and, and Moses here, right? When he comes in, go back and read those passages. John 2, John, uh, I can't remember the second one is. 18, uh, I, I can't think of it off my hand. But man, that's, he gets in there and he's throwing tables out, running people out, build, makes a whip. I mean, he's hot. That's his father's house. And, and you see that same intensity with Moses here. Look at verse 20. <clears throat> he took the calf which, he, which they had made and burned it with fire and ground it into powder and scattered it over the surface of the water and made the sons of Israel drink it. Well, this is just a judicial action that Moses takes against these people broken the law of God, sin, there's punishment. Blessedly for those who reject God. And the verse contains just clear consequences, right? Sin always leads to death, and you're going to see this. And so there's twofold response to this nation's sin. One, their idols crushed up, grounded to power, um, probably burned up with the materials of, of the altar or something that they made in front of it. And then secondly, the nation is forced to drink it. You go, Isn't that kind of weird? You want this so much? Let's see how it goes going down. Let's digest what you have done. A lot of people do things and never digest what they've done. They'll blame it on somebody else. They'll never think deeply about what they've done. See, only the repentant people digest it. And he's pushing them to do that. The only time we ever see this done is in Numbers chapter 5. When, I don't know, it's a really wild kind of passage where the adult, a woman who is accused of adultery is brought in and they take the dust of the floor of the tabernacle and mix it in water and make it drink it. And it's a pretty uh, wild passage. But here it's just clear that God is wanting them to see their sin, right? And all the smoke clears, Moses proves that he's a God-given leader here. Sin requires immediate and drastic action. I can't say that enough. Jesus himself said, if your, if your hand offends you, lop it off. It's better to enter into heaven without an arm. And what he's talking about is the drastic nature it takes to deal with sin. You can't say, well, I'll, I'll, I'll deal with this later. Or I'll get around to this someday. Or I'll start going back to church so I can maybe get over this. That sin's going to kill you. And so there's an immediate response by Moses. This is showing his great leadership. And clearly he did not act alone. Joshua and the Levites are with him here, but he takes the initiative and you see his leadership. And then, point three, we see the reversal. Uh, um, an adequate leader gives an inadequate response. Look at verses 21 through 24. Now, not all these, I don't, it's hard when you read through this if this was the exact chronological order of this as you look at it in a narrative, but somewhere along the line, all these events take place. Look at verse 21 with me. Then Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? Well, the implications of Moses' statement here are that there had to be something. Did they have a gun to your head? Did they have your children who are ready to roast them? I mean, you can see what he's getting at. What in the world did they do to you that you would allow this to happen? And you see, Moses is pushing on Aaron here to find out what wicked thing they did to have such a heinous sin before God. 
Again, this is not a verse of excuses or some kind of double talk. This was sin, and Aaron was responsible. Leadership is responsible. Puts a heavy weight on leadership. We're to be above reproach. We're to lead the flock, not let the flock lead us. And they're constantly doing this. We see churches too often, and man, I humbly say this, but I see men who bow to their churches constantly, and they end up taking the church somewhere because the sheep are leading. And they end up somewhere not preaching the gospel or never talking about sin, and they're so consumed with what the sheep are worried about, and they're not concerned what God is about. And I think this is what Moses is doing. You were concerned more about the sheep than the fire on top of the mountain up here. If you had just looked up. And remember, Aaron has no idea, as Moses writes later, later, that God was so angry with you and he sought to destroy you, but I prayed for you. This was an intense situation. Look at verse 22. And Aaron said, Do not, Aaron said, Do not let the anger of my Lord burn. You know the people yourselves that they are prone to evil. Well, here we see Aaron's attempt to try to appease Moses. A very parent, he was mad. Moses is frustrated with him, right? And notice the parallel to Aaron to Moses and Moses to God. He says, my Lord. Moses said to God, my Lord. Aaron says to Moses, my Lord. And Aaron, Aaron tries to minimize his role. You see this? See, he's shifting blame onto the people. Blame shifting is the most sinful thing we do, I think. Because we don't own our sin. It will destroy your marriage. It will destroy your children. It will destroy your church. Don't blame shift. And you see Aaron doing this. Notice he says, you know the people yourself. He's almost putting it back on Moses. They're prone to, to evil. And yes, the character of the people was terrible, right? They're a fallen group of people. But Aaron failed in his leadership. And notice sin brings fear. And you can see fear in Aaron as he's before Moses here and really the mediator before God. And he's trying to evade his responsibilities. Look at verse 23 and 24. For they said to him, they said to me, here's Aaron still speaking, make a God for us who will go before us. For this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has happened to him. And I said to them, whoever has gold, let them tear them off. So they came to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came a calf. <laughs> I mean, we laugh at this, don't we? And you can just see him seeking to defend himself. And... and He's trying to put a negative light on the people and get the spotlight off himself. Do you see that we do that sometimes, right? We're clearly wrong, but we go, well, well that guy's worse. Because we don't want to deal with it. We don't want to confess it. We don't want to humble ourselves and say, yeah, God, you're right. How you deal with him. I've got to get right with you. Notice this passage reminds us that no one can lead God's people except the perfect mediator. Just reminds us that. And that's why Christ is the head of the church. And though your pastors are given charge over you and given, put, you're put into our care, we're under shepherds for the chief shepherd. And it is only him who can lead right. And that's why we keep him 
in the head of the church. That's why it's written in our doctrinal statements that way. That's why we refer to his word all the time. Because we are insufficient to properly lead you. So we lead through him and to him and by him. That's the only way we can do it. Now, to the contrary, because Moses was leading through God, right? Aaron's making himself out to look ridiculous here, isn't he? When you blame shift long enough, pretty soon you'll look ridiculous to somebody. You'll blame somebody else for ridiculous things. And, and he explains that somehow this bull calf just produces itself out of the fire. I've heard so many people teach on this, that this was satanic. And it could have, I'm sure it was. Satan loves to defy God. But that's not what happened here. Aaron's lying. He built this thing. And, and it, it, it's heartbreaking to see. And, um, and this is often what happens when spiritual leaders are more concerned about their own protection of themselves. They'll create all kinds of problems. And, and think about this. This is Moses' older brother. Aaron's older than Moses. That's hard to deal with, especially in this ancient world where the older brother had the rights. But Moses does not put up with it. He still speaks truth. Now, it can be difficult to take a stand. And I, I just want to finish this point with encouragement. Is God's word worthy of standing firm on? I mean, graciously, be gracious, be humble. But is it worth standing on? I have a little plaque on my desk. If you've been in my office, you see it. It says, stand firm. It's 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Just a reminder to me and all who walk in, we've got to stand firm on, on God's word because you're constantly getting pushed to, to cave in somewhere. Stand firm. That's what the flock needs. That's what I need. And I think Aaron is like so many men who are just intimidated by unbiblical people. God loves to raise us up Elijahs who stand before the king and all the court and, and believe in God that, he can, that his word is true and, and, and he watches them pour water on his sacrifice and fill the ditch up with water and he calls on God in such a humble way. And of course, God proves himself. And then you get Moses, who, excuse me, who, uh, Paul, who stood alone in his trial. He says, there was no one there with me. And then he writes in that great passage in Romans 1, uh, 1.16, he says, I'm unashamed of the gospel. I'm unashamed of the gospel. Can you say that? For rebellious sin will bring judgment and death. Well, real quick, you can see what happens here. Verse 25, now when Moses saw that the people were out of control, it's still going on, right? There's a continuous here. He's talking with Aaron possibly, and this, this thing's out of control. Sin is in a frenzy. You've ever seen people when they get in sinful ways? Watch writing, watch, you know, people just attack other people. I mean, it just gets, it's scary, right? We've all seen it actually in the last year or so. And it's going crazy, but notice in verse 25, he says, when he saw the people were out of control, for Aaron had let them get out of control to be in a derision among their enemies. So rebellion has generated down to lawlessness and and not only have they defiled the commands of God, but they're out of control. The word means they're broke loose 
of restraints. The Hebrew word means that there's absence of any disciplined behavior among them. All the things your mama taught you to do, you've rebelled against. And here, rebelling against God's word. And so the, um, the result is here that the enemies will mock the nation and mock God. See, Moses picked that up from God. And I'll look at verse 26. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, whoever, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. Notice it should be in an exclamation point in your Bible. And there's a reason why. I'll share that in a minute. And all the sons of Levi gathered together to him. The Hebrew language is really strong here. This is a, this is a strong statement of loyalty. And not to Moses, but to God. I think what he's saying is, follow your sin or follow God. What are you going to do? And of course, you notice that he, who comes, it's the men of his own tribe. It's the Levite tribe, right? And this verse alludes to the idea that Moses was standing somewhere, probably between the mountain of God and the gateway to the people. He's in between the wrath of God and the gateway of people. And he's calling out, who are you going to follow? You're going to follow your sin or you're going to follow God? Verse 28. So the sons of Levi did as Moses instructed. About 3,000 men of the people fell that day. I want you to think about this for just a moment. We know there's about 600,000 men over the age of 20. If they had a wife and children, I mean, you're easy at 2 million, real easy, if not two to four some, there's a lot of people in this camp. And I would imagine that the Levites went after those who blatantly rebelled and were caught up in the frenzy of sin. I, I think they had probably had enough sense to see people who weren't fleeing to their tents and going, oh wow, we really crossed the line, but we're continuing sin, and doubtlessly that was those that they smote. But look at verse 29. Then Moses said, dedicate yourself today to the Lord for every man that has, uh, has been against his son and against his brother in order that he may bestow a blessing upon you today. So before God could fully set the Levites apart for the service in the tabernacle, it's interesting, he sets them apart through this. And you go, wow, he set them apart before this bloodshed? D don't get lost in all of that. It is kind of brutal. But he set a group of men apart who were appalled at even their own sin and the sin of the nation and seeing the great offense against God. That's how he sets the Levites apart. And it's not all of the Levites. It's only a portion of them. So this in itself was a test. Who's going to come forward? Who's going to come forward and say, I'll follow you, God. I'll turn against the sin that I may even been involved with. I'm not sure because the text doesn't tell us. And I'm going to turn against that. I think this is a great test. So I think this is the way God was selecting those among the Levite tribe who would defend his glory and approach him the right way. Because remember, Moses is coming down. This is how you're going to get to me, right? This is the, the tabernacle. This is the courtyard. This is the holy place. And this is the most holy place. And this is how you're going to get to me. And Levites are only going to come to me. So he wants to know who's going to follow me and do it right. It's quite a fascinating thought. To see how God would bring about those faithful men. Last thought. The mediator between a sinful people and a holy God. Verses 30 through 35. Look at verse 30 with me. On the next day, Moses said to the people, You yourselves have committed a great sin, and now I'm going up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. 
I, I really appreciate Moses' that he made no attempt to minimize sin. I'm going to go up to a God who can wipe us all out like that. Because that's what we deserve. And I'm going to try to mediate. Notice he says, you yourselves. Isn't that interesting? You yourselves have committed the sin. It's an emphatic verb, right, in the Hebrew. You yourself. Recognize your sin. You did this. It's pointing to the fact that they had been disgusting in their behavior towards God. In fact, I think at least six times, I didn't count the Hebrew, I counted the English, I have to go back and look at it. At least six times in five verses, Moses uses the word sin. And then he says, perhaps. <laughs> Ooh, Moses has seen the anger of God. He's been there and God's saying, here's what your people are doing down there. And he says, perhaps. God will be merciful and gracious to us. He won't give us what we deserve. And notice Moses takes it upon himself to atone for their sins. I'm going to atone. Man, if you don't see Moses as a type of Christ, you're missing it. He's not Christ. He's got, Christ's got to die. I want to make this clear because people will misquote me on this. But he is a type. One man can come into the presence of God and atone for the sins of the people. Jesus Christ is our mediator. He comes, only one man comes into the Holy of Holies before God with his own blood to make atonement for us. And you see this in this verse, don't you? Notice verse 31. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has committed a great sin. <laughs> Moses is telling the Lord this. And they have made a God of gold for themselves. Now, I think God told Moses this was a great sin. But to hear it and see it, it really affected Moses. And he says, they've committed a great sin. You know what they did? They made a god of gold. It's not easy to understand all the timing of this event. But again, in Deuteronomy chapter 9, we get a little more information. Verse 18, it says this. Moses speaking, I fell down before the Lord... As at the first 40, uh, at first, 40 days and 40 nights, I neither ate bread nor drank water because all of your sin, which you had committed in doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Now, I don't, there's a lot of people think a lot of things on that. Was this, was after he went up? I mean, where was this? But he says, for 40 days, I didn't eat, drink, sleep. I fell before God pleading on your behalf because you provoked his anger. What a mediator. I don't pretend to know what was going through the mind of God as his son marched his way to the cross. But I know what would go through my mind. And I think our Savior was pleading on our behalf all the way to the cross. Don't kill him, God. I'm going to solve this. You just see this beautiful role of a mediator. Verse 32. I'm going to finish up here. But now, if you will forgive their sins, and if not, now look at this, please blot me out from your book which you have written. I don't think Moses is offering to pay the penalty with 
his people, but for his people. This is an absolutely substitutionary death he's asking for. It was really common in those days, and still in these days, kings keep record of who is actually underneath their control. And they keep books, registers of citizens. And clearly, brothers and sisters, God has a divine registry here called the book of life. And it's an interesting book because God knows whose are his, 2 Timothy 2.19. But Moses takes it upon himself to be the ultimate responsibility for the leadership here. And he does much like, just like Paul does. Remember in Romans chapter 9 verse 3, Paul offers himself, would, would take eternal damnation if God would save his people. Does the exact same thing Moses does. See, they're all pointing as types to Christ. But God would not allow Moses to pay such a price here because Moses couldn't pay it. God was looking for and reserving that payment for the greater mediator. The mediator who was without sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin for us. That was the greater mediator. All this is pointing there, but I can't get by what Moses said. Blot me out. Let me take the damnation. And, and really, isn't that what Christ did? Wasn't he damned for us, in a sense? All of the wages of sin fell upon him. All of the wrath of God poured out on him for our sins. Why do we want to keep sending, brothers and sisters? Greater knowledge of Christ, a greater knowledge of God helps us stop sinning. Look at verse 33. The Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. This first reminder is first a reminder of just the gravity of sin against the holy God. The names in the book of life, they enjoy fellowship with the king. I don't I think just earthly, but eternally probably more, because sometimes for some of the members of heavenly kingdom, life on this earth is not that easy. But to have one's name blotted out of the book was to be given eternal punishment here. And this is an interesting phrase. Micah <coughs> chapter 3, verse 16 talks about a book of remembrance. And he says, there's names in the book of remembrance for those who fear, awe, worship God. And then you get into Philippians 4, is the next time we see it used. And Paul's urging that these two women that are having the struggle together uh, with each other, he urges uh, Philippi, the church, to help them reconcile this difficult struggle. And he says, whose names are in the book of life. I really like that verse, because one thing I realize, Christians still struggle with each other. But we should be reconciling because our names are in the book of life. Can you imagine going all the way to heaven and not reconcile with somebody that you have a grievance with? It shouldn't happen with us. Then you get to Revelations, you get to the church of Sardis. Jesus says, he who overcomes, verse, chapter 3, verse 5, will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name out of the book of life. And I will confess his name before the Father and before angels. Wow, what a statement. And then you get all the way down to Revelations 20, and all the dead, great and small, are standing before the throne. The books are open, plural, 
And another book was opened, which was the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things that were written in this book according to their deeds. And so this is an interesting book, right? It has the elect in it, but it also has the recording of those who are not elect in their sins and they're judged according to it. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? It's an amazing book. Revelation chapter 20, verse 15, in anyone's name who was not found in the, written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You know what's fascinating? Moses knows about the book because he makes a comment about it. So somewhere along the line, God told him, I have a book, I have everybody's name in it. And I'm recording all this stuff. He's an awesome God, isn't he? He is to be feared, but not in a fear like the world would fear him. We, as believers in this room, we have an awe for him. He's not to be sung to like a girlfriend. Does this make sense when we study this? How reverent he should be approached in coming through our great mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, because he is the only way to him. He's the only truth. He's the only life. And there's no other way to the Father. You just over, when you study this stuff, you get overwhelmed with the glory and person of God. And it hurts when you hear people drag his name through the mud. Verse 34. But go now, God speaking to Moses, lead the people where I told you. You're on your own. <laughs> Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in that day when I punish, I will punish them for their sins. Now notice God says, no longer my people, they're yours. I think this scared him more than anything God said. It would scare me. <laughs> and he says, my angel. Well, there's two different angels in the Bible. There are angels called the angel of the Lord, and they divine, have divine attributes that only God has in their theophanies. And then there are your, I don't like to use this word, but an ordinary angel who comes and has special tasks to do. And it seems, he's saying, it's not the angel of the Lord coming with you anymore. I'll send an angel because I'm, you know, I'll let him go before you and he'll help you. And we're going to see next week when we get into chapter 33, Moses going, I'm not going. If you don't go, I'm not going. And I love that text because, you know, when you follow the Lord long enough, you go, I'm not going, Lord, if you're not going. I've been out there. It's desert, it's dry, and you're going to die out there without God. And Moses said, I'm not going. He knows exactly what God's talking about. But notice the end of verse 34. He says, shall he shall go before you, nevertheless in the day when I punish, I will punish them for their sins. Verse 35, then the Lord smote the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron had made. Now I think probably that's why the timeline of the narrative is interesting how it gets written. It may, it may be just dropping us in in different conversations in it. Because there's no other mention that there's a further pestilence that hits him in this. It could be referring to Moses' cleansing of the Levites, that that happened uh, with the Levites there, and the 3,000 people died. It could be looking forward to pestilence that were in, in the book of Numbers. And it could even be looking forward to the 40 years while they're wandering in the desert because of their lack of faith. But ultimately, we see a group of people rebel against God with their self-forgetful love and ultimately cause them to pay this penalty of sin. And many die. Many die. 
But then, then you see the selfless love, and I'm going to end with this, the selfless love of a mediator who's willing to lay his life down. And that's how this whole passage gets wrapped up till the next one when the Lord's going to set him in the cleft and rock. And just like we sang, you're going to see that next week as we get into that passage. But this is the selfless one. And of course, again, here's the type. Jesus said, Great, no greater love is it than this, than one who lay down his life for his friends. Moses is saying, take me. Blot me out. He knows what that means. And it's ultimately just a scene of love, isn't it? It's compassion. It's compassion for undeserving people. And the reason we are not compassion for, compassionate for other people is because we forget we don't deserve any of that. And for that little time when we want to argue and be mean and, and not love the way God wants us to love, for that moment, at least for that moment, we forget that Jesus laid down his life for us. And we're not compassionate, we're not loving, we're not caring, and we're certainly not an example. But Moses here, he's a good type, isn't he? And he was looking forward to the true shepherd through his life. And Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And ultimately, that's what this is a picture of. A holy, perfect, omniscient God rightly could put his wrath on every soul ever conceived. And then you have a mediator. He comes and says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I think he said that for all of us as he was drawing us to himself. Father, thank you for this great reminder. You're such a holy God, Lord, and then this wicked world, Lord, in our own wicked lives at times, Lord, we lose that view of you. You're a holy God. We're set apart from sin. And not one of the Israelites deserved to live that day. But not one of us deserved to live either. You've seen all of our sin. You've seen our secret calves that we have in our lives. You've seen where we've had our festivals as we've, in our heart, danced around things that are godless. You've seen all that, God. And yet, you did not strike us because your mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, said, I died for him or her. I have rescued them. I fulfilled our plan, Father. And you passed over us. So, Lord, we are so grateful. I pray that we keep the beautiful balance of a God, a holy God, and yet be able to see your love. I think only Christians can see that. Only Christians can see a holy God and a God of love. So help us focus on that. Help us as we have marriages and parenting and grandparenting and have businesses and so forth. Lord, help us apply this tomorrow. This is all good stuff, but Lord, it's got to go farther than this room. So let it go with us as we go out the doors and we go home and we go and live this out, Lord. Father, thank you for a church that desires the word of God. Please protect us, cause us to have a right view of you, right view of sin, cause us to be worshipers of your son. In Jesus' name, amen.